All right, last week Caleb did an excellent job um, teaching on the transfiguration of Jesus. And as he said, the disciples came down from this mountaintop experience with Jesus and they had to return to sort of the hard realities of ministry in a sinful world. They had witnessed the, this glorious picture of the Son of God and then they came down from this spiritual high and were immediately met by a crowd of people who were wanting Jesus to fix their problems. One of them was a father with a demon-possessed child, a son. So that's a, that's a pretty heavy thing to come back down the mountain to, right? And really a significant reality check for the disciples. And so I want to say to us, just in kind of to summarize, the church was a mess then, and it is a mess now because people are a mess. But Jesus loves His people. He knew what He was getting when He came to earth. And He is patient with us even in our worst moments, which is sort of what we're going to look at today. Beginning uh, in verse 43, Luke chapter 9. It says, But while they were all marveling at everything Jesus was doing, He said to His disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. Now that's something you're going to say to somebody if you really want them to hear and understand, right? Get this through your skull, okay? The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, so the obvious question is, why did Jesus tell them, I want you to really pay attention to what I'm about to say to you, but he tells them something that they weren't actually meant to understand. Isn't that strange? I'm going to suggest a simple answer. They weren't meant to understand it yet. It was so that after the resurrection, after Jesus had accomplished what He came to do, they would remember His words and the light bulb would go off, right? It would make sense. Because Jesus' death was a surprise to them, but, of course, not to Jesus. God, you know, Jesus knew God's plan all along. He knew what was going to happen to Him. But in this moment, they did not understand. And that's really obvious because of what happens next. Okay, so Jesus says this, and in verse 46 it says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I want you to imagine a grieving father 
sitting and weeping at the funeral of his only son. And his neighbor approaches and puts his hand on his shoulder and says, since your son won't need his bicycle anymore, would you consider selling it to me for a good price? That's absurd, right? I mean, that is the most insensitive thing that you could do in that situation. Jesus foretells His death, and His disciples respond by arguing about rank. That's in the same ballpark. But Jesus is not offended. He is patient with them. And in fact, He uses the moment to gently teach them a very powerful lesson. Verse 47, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. I want you to notice Luke says that Jesus challenges the reasoning of their hearts. So what's going on in their hearts? What are they arguing about? It's their own sense of worth or value. They're arguing their own merits. And so in their eyes, based on that line of reasoning, this child has little value. He has little merit, except that Jesus claims him and places him by his own side to make an object lesson, right? And then Jesus reasons with them. He says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Now we believe that Jesus had children following him often in his ministry. There are several um, instances where the Gospels tell us about children and Jesus' interactions with children. But we also get the impression that to the disciples, they were probably a nuisance. They were not an important aspect of Jesus' ministry at all. And yet to Jesus, these children were extremely valuable. So I want you to imagine <clears throat> a helicopter lands in your front yard and Jeff Bezos gets out of the helicopter. And he comes to your door and says, I'm here to visit with you. I'm going to spend some time with you today. Completely unannounced. How might you receive him? Probably, if you, if you have any sense, you would receive him, you would treat him like a king, right? Give him the best chair, you know, make the best cup of coffee. Just be the nicest you could, the, the best version of yourself. To the best of your ability, you would greet him and welcome him. Why? Because he's extremely wealthy, and if he visits you, he might be planning to share some of that wealth with you, right? 
There's a good chance that that's possible. That's what the word receive means in the text. The disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God. And Jesus says, I want you to receive a child like you would receive me. I want you to receive a child in the same way you would receive a king. Receive people who can't do anything for you. Receive people who have no influence as quickly as you would receive someone who does have influence and power and money. And it's as if he's saying, if you do that, then you will begin to attract the kind of people meant for the kingdom of heaven. And so this is a powerful lesson in leadership. If you think about it, at every stage of our life, we find ourselves looking up to the people who are sort of one step ahead of us in life, right? Young children look up to older children. In some ways, they learn more from them than they do adults. Middle schoolers look up to high schoolers. High schoolers look up to college and young adults, right? Young adults wish they had more opportunities to learn from older adults. But very often in society, the people that we look up to don't have time for us, and we don't have time for people who are younger than us. We forget that our younger brothers and sisters in Christ are not here for us to overlook or ignore. In fact, they ought to be treated with the same respect and value as we would a king or a queen. They are not nuisances. We should see the same leadership and energy being applied to every generation in the church from cradle to grave. And so I'm telling you, love and serve the children and youth of this church. If Jesus had to teach the apostles to do this, then certainly He would give us the same lesson. And I'm especially talking to my brothers in Christ. Notice, appreciate, value, and serve the children and youth of this church. Now, this obviously made the disciples very uncomfortable because one of them changes the subject immediately. Okay, look at verse 49. John answered, so he answered. So whatever Jesus was saying, he's like, I got something, Jesus. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Completely changes the subject. And it almost sounds like a boast. Like John seems proud of the fact that they did this. 
Like, okay, Jesus, we didn't get that one right, but let me tell you what we did. Still thinking the same way, right? But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. I think this is another lesson in humility. The kingdom is bigger than your little circle of disciples. Because in the end, there are only going to be two sides. Kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is correcting this attitude of exclusivity, which is very common because of the way we think. It's the assumption that that God could only be at work in ways that I expect, in people that I expect. And we can safely conclude that that sort of attitude has been a big problem in church history, right? We've been studying church history on Wednesday nights, and one of the things that we've learned is that we have a long, violent history of rejecting people who don't follow Jesus with us, as, as John says. But I don't get to be the judge of who's really a follower of Jesus. Jesus can handle that perfectly fine without me. And there are most likely true followers of Jesus scattered across most every denomination or gathering of professing Christians around the world. I really believe that. This is why we make it very simple to be adopted into Christ's fellowship. It is a simple profession of faith in the basic gospel message. We don't care what kind of church background you have. Um, you don't have to agree with us on all the secondary issues. Um, yes, I'm Presbyterian. Our church is Presbyterian, but there are plenty of people actually in our church that disagree over things like infant baptism, and that's fine. You're still welcome here. We may have significant disagreements, in fact, but if you are living a life of repentance and faith in Jesus, then you are welcome in this local church. This is also why I am extremely disheartened and skeptical of any church or denomination, no matter how old or how large it may be, that claims that they are the one true church. That they are the only true followers of Jesus. And I'm going to name them, okay? best I can. I'm probably going to miss some, but it's my understanding that Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Amish, Mennonites, Quakers, and most every cult, they all have this in common. They all teach officially that they are the only true church. And that bothers me because it doesn't sound much like Jesus at all. 
So I'll let, I'll let you dwell on that, but let's move on. Verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is, uh, this is that turning point that I told you was coming in Luke chapter 9. Um, it happens in all of the Gospels in a similar manner. Jesus starts heading towards Jerusalem. And it's actually a nod, this one is a nod to a prophecy in Isaiah 50 that the Messiah would set his face like flint while he endures humiliation and disgrace. So Jesus, of course, knew what was going to happen, and he approaches Jerusalem with courage and resolve. Verse 52, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Luke repeats it. So again, Jesus is already... He's already facing rejection. This is, this, the humiliation has already started. This village refuses to provide hospitality, which is a big deal. And the only explanation that's really given is that somehow it moves Jesus closer to His death. Verse 54, And when the disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. What? Okay. <laughs> so out of the blue, they say this, and it's really not a crazy idea when you consider the history, right? The Samaritans, even though Jesus has, has sought to reach them, they did not worship God as they should have. So quick Bible trivia. God sent fire from heaven to consume His enemies three times in the Old Testament. The first was Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know who called it down the second and third times? Anybody? Elijah. Good job. It was Elijah. Who did James and John literally just meet on top of the mountain? Elijah, right? So... They're ready to go Old Testament on this village because they just met Elijah. Probably. Okay. Verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Now Luke ends the chapter with a litany of brief encounters with prospective disciples. And I want to ask you to pay close attention to the next several verses, okay? <clears throat> this is really... Everything else I'm just leading up to kind of talking about this. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus says, this is another way of saying count the costs. You have to understand that most of the people who are following Jesus were doing so because they believed Him to be a man of influence and power. They didn't think of Him as a homeless man. But that's what Jesus is saying that He is in this moment. He's saying, I'm homeless, 
and rejected. Will you really follow me anywhere? Are you willing to be homeless? Verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. So Jesus says to somebody, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. i got to tell you, that's some tough love, right? Okay, so the man says, I want to go bury my father. Probably his father is not dead yet, so what he's asking is to go back as the oldest son and take care of affairs and wait for his father to die. Maybe, okay? But Jesus simply says to him, No. Why are you concerned with the things of this world, basically? And you might be like, well, I mean, Jesus, I mean, his dad, like physical death, like that's a big deal. Like we, and Jesus is like, no, no, I want you to be concerned only with spiritual death. So in other words, he's telling this man that the business of the kingdom is more important even than your family commitments. Are you okay with that? Verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now this one's just like, come on. All all he's saying is, let's go. I just need to say goodbye. Let me just go run home real quick and say goodbye. I'll be right back, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, no. No one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. Is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. Now we might ask, does Jesus even want these people following him? He seems to be demanding so much. Almost like following Jesus is going to cost us everything. And I want to suggest to you, and and I'm going to go on and say right now, I might be wrong about this, how I'm about to interpret it for you. okay? Because it's a little complex, and it bears the weight of a lot of other things. So I could be wrong. So let me just say that now. But I believe, when I read passages like this, I believe there is an important tension here. And we are tempted to interpret verses like these one of two ways, and neither is exactly right. On the one hand, this text and the ones like it have been used to beat Christians up for not being sold out for Jesus. But I would love for someone to tell me what it looks like to be sold out for Jesus because everyone seems to have a different opinion about what it means to be sold out for Jesus. And last I checked, none of those sold out preachers are homeless and none of them have abandoned their families. So be careful with placing a burden on people that Jesus does not place. Verse 
Okay? In fact, your opinion of what a sold-out Christian should be doing can quickly become more important to you than Jesus Himself. You become focused on certain truths and certain moral actions and certain ways of living. And it still won't be enough. It will never be enough because you're missing the point of this chapter completely. So that's, that's one side of things. And I'm not saying there's not an element of truth to it. Yes. On the other hand, some Christians are tempted to read this as if Jesus doesn't really want us to follow Him. As if this is just an impossible challenge that is only meant to highlight our need of grace. Jesus is going somewhere that we cannot go. No one can really follow Him. We only need to trust Him to go and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so it's a, it's a, a really heavy emphasis on justification, right? And of course, there's an element of truth in that. Jesus did do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, and we receive that work by faith. But, we are also united by faith with Jesus in His death and resurrection. And Jesus means it when He commands us to follow Him. He means it when He says, count the costs. He means it when He says that we must be willing to give up everything for the sake of His kingdom. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in a tension, and it's the tension of following Jesus without looking back. But what does that mean, practically? What does it mean? One of my favorite scenes from the Chronicles of Narnia comes near the end of Prince Caspian. The children are in a forest, and some of the children think that they have seen King Aslan, who is the, the main character, the great lion, walking through the woods. They think they've seen him, but for most of the kids, he's still kind of blurry and almost like a ghost. Like they're not sure if they've seen him or not. Maybe their eyes playing tricks on them. One of the children can't see Aslan at all, and so he thinks they're all lying. But Lucy, who is the youngest, she's the only one that can see Aslan clearly and perfectly. One night, everyone's asleep, and Aslan begins to call to Lucy. And she wakes up. Everybody else is sleeping. She goes to a clearing in the woods, and she finds Aslan there, and she speaks with him. And he tells her that she must lead the others because she's the only one who sees him clearly. But she's afraid. She says, Aslan, I don't think they're going to believe me. I'm the youngest. Why would they follow me? But she agrees to try. And after some argument, she convinces the other children to follow her, which keeps them safe in the end. 
And I want you to listen to this line from the story. It says, He led them, this is Aslan, led them to the right of the dancing trees. Whether they were still dancing, nobody knows. For Lucy had her eyes on the lion, and the rest had their eyes on Lucy. So I want to ask you, can you see in your mind this picture of a little girl following a great lion through the woods and all the older children trailing along behind her? What did Jesus say to his disciples? You must become like a little child. I think this is the point of Luke 9. Jesus says, follow me. Keep your eyes on me. Not on what's happening in the world around you. Not on what other disciples are doing unless they're following me too. Just keep your eyes on me. It's not about what you're giving up or not giving up, doing or not doing. It's about watching Jesus. And all that other stuff will fall in place. It will. If you're following Him, the rest will work itself out. Follow Him. We follow Christ and our hope is that others will come to see Christ in us. It's not about us. It's about Him. All true disciples are doing nothing but following Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. Because He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so what I'm saying to you is this. Brothers and sisters, stop obsessing about what it means to follow Jesus and just follow Jesus. Just stay with Him. And I think, I think, as I said, I could be wrong. I think this is what it means to live in the tension between my yoke is easy and my burden is light and take up your cross and die. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, it is so beautiful to see how patient you were with the disciples that in such a crucial ministry-defining moment where you revealed to them your plans to die for them, to die for your people, they missed it entirely and they fought about silly things. But you were patient with them and you're patient with us and you encourage us to embrace you with faith like a child. And we get so caught up in all the wrong things, but you know that about us too. And so, Father, we pray together as a church that you would help us to follow you, to trust you, to be near to you. And we have an opportunity at this simple table that you instituted to do just that, just to 
just to come and receive with empty hands the promise. And we do so together as an act of faith. We ask you to set this table apart from its everyday use, its common use, and make it something more than bread and juice. Make it a means of grace for us that we can eat together and drink together as if we're in the kingdom together. And one day we will be with you. For now, you've promised to be here by spirit. So we ask for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, In just a minute, I'll ask you to come down front and get the bread and the cup. Um, I'll need an elder, Pax, if you'd come help me. Um, The purple cups are real wine. The clear cups are grape juice. It doesn't matter which one. We just we have the option. Um, and so you'll take it back to your seats. Um, the table is, is not, it's not it does, you don't have to be adopted into our church to take the Lord's Supper. You just need to have made a profession of faith in Jesus um, publicly in some church that teaches the gospel. Um, so if you haven't done that yet, don't, don't come and talk to me about that if you'd like to make a profession of faith here. Uh, we can facilitate that. Um, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. After dinner, he took the cup, and he said, this cup represents the new covenant which is in my blood. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Amen. Please come.